There's no doubt about it, Australians seem to love DIY, do-it-yourself. Bunnings and Mitre 10 have entire sections devoted to DIY with workshops and brochures and there's, there's information leaflets up there at Mitre 10 on how to build a cubby house, how to grow your own herbs, do-it-yourself fix a leaking tap, do-it-yourself water tank, how to build a dog kennel, do-it-yourself timber fence, how to build a memories box, whatever that is, how to lay your own paving, and the list goes on. It seems that you could do anything. And it seems that people will give anything a go. Although it doesn't always work out, does it? If you listen to the Weekend Woodies on ABC Radio on Saturday morning, especially their Boof Head of the Week segment, where they highlight someone who's tried do-it-yourself and it didn't work. A couple of my favourites were the fishermen who tried to use a spear gun to shoot some electrical wire up through the roof because the gap was a bit big. This, the rubber on the spear gun caught a um, bolt in the wood and it came back around, hit him in the nose and knocked him off his ladder. There's another fellow who was doing some repairs on the roof and for safety reasons, he was on the external outside of the roof, he tied a piece of rope around his waist over the roof down the other side of the roof and onto the tow bar of the car. Unfortunately, you guessed it, he didn't tell his wife. <laughs> she walks out, drives off. He's over the roof, down the other side and on the ground. That's actually quite serious. He won Head of the Week that week. Some people, it seems, will attempt to do anything themselves, even if they don't know what they're doing, and even if it's out of their depth. Other people maybe you're one of them, would rather call in someone and get the job done properly. This morning we're thinking about our relationship with God and I wonder how God wants us to go about fixing things up. Does he want us to have a go at it? If we're not sure about it, does he want us to have a stab anyway? When it comes to God, where should we begin? That's what this section of Mark's Gospel is about. And what it's saying is that when it comes to God, do-it-yourself is not the way to go. When it comes to God, trying to fix things up yourself between you and God will end in disaster and there's no doubt about it. Now I think that's a problem because I think a lot of people are into DIY, fix it up with God. You know, if I help people out, if I'm a good person, surely that will make things better between me and God. If I work a bit on my language and tone things down a bit and don't do anything too bad, surely I'll be okay with God. Well, the key thing to take away from today's passage, that's not the case. We can't fix it. Look at Mark 10:26, where we're heading. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man... This is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now this is where we're heading towards at the end of today's passage, and I think it's a real important lesson that a lot of people don't get about Christianity, even people who call themselves Christians. Being a Christian is not about being a good person. When it comes to heaven, in fact, there's nothing we can contribute it's impossible for us to get ourselves to heaven. There's nothing that we can kind of feel good about that we're Christians. When it comes to being on good terms with God, it is impossible for us to do. And that's what this section is about. So let's have a look at it. Uh, what we 
see at first glance seems to be four unconnected incidents, but they're actually all about God's power, not ours. There's the disciples not being able to drive out an evil spirit. There's Jesus teaching about divorce. There's the children coming to Jesus. There's the rich man, and they all have the same idea running through them that we are powerless and that God is able. So let's pick it up in Mark chapter 9, back at verse 14. Scene 1, you can see it in your bulletin there. The disciples not being able to drive out an evil spirit. Verse 14. This is the um, disciples who were with Jesus last week coming down from the mountain to meet the other disciples. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law were arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher. I bought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. While Jesus and Peter and James and John were up on the mountain, the other disciples are trying to drive out an evil spirit. But it doesn't work. They can't do it. Jesus goes on in the next few verses to talk to the man. He rebukes the spirit and it comes out. What the disciples were unable to do, Jesus has done. And they asked Jesus why. Verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This kind can only come out by prayer. The explanation is simple enough, isn't it? The disciples were trying to drive out this spirit somehow without prayer, in their own power, as if it's just a matter of, I don't know, getting the words right or working up enough power or copying what Jesus did or something. Jesus says, no, you need God's help for this. I mean, how else would you drive out a demon other than by prayer, by asking God? What on earth were the disciples doing thinking they could drive out an evil spirit without prayer? In their own power. It's not about do it yourself, it's about relying on God. Although I don't think we should point the finger too quickly, should we? I'm like this very often, thinking that I can just do things in my own strength, thinking that I can just wing it or make plans about life and family without putting a lot of prayer into it at all. And then I wonder why life gets frustrating and such a mess. What's the Apostle James say? You do not have because you do not ask God. Sometimes, to my disgrace, I even catch myself having started to prepare a sermon and then thinking, I haven't prayed about this, wondering why it's not working. Here's the disciples trying to cast out a demon without prayer. Surprise, surprise, it doesn't work. It's not about do it yourself, it's about relying on God because what we are powerless to do God is able. But not only are the disciples unable to drive out this evil spirit, they discover that other people are having success where they failed. Now that's a bit embarrassing. So they try to stop these other people. Verse 38, Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. 
Now, different um, circumstances, but it's the same root of the problem. The disciples think it's all about them. It's not about them and their power. It's about Jesus. Verse 39. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. See, if the disciples realise that it's God who drives out demons, they won't be so worried about who's doing it. It's God's work, not theirs, not this man's. I think this passage actually brings freedom, doesn't it? We don't have to worry about what other people are doing who say they're followers of Jesus. If they're doing a good thing for the kingdom of God, we can rejoice It's the work of the gospel. If they're not doing a good job, then they're accountable to God. And that's what Jesus goes on to talk about next because claiming to do things in Jesus' name is a serious claim. Claiming to be a follower of Jesus is a serious thing. We're talking about eternity here. You don't want to be a fake. Verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied round his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed, eternal life he means there, than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is saying here, this is big. This is actually about people's eternal destiny it's about whether people end up in heaven or hell forever so how dare we think that driving out demons or sharing the gospel with people or doing a two-way live course or any of those things is just to kind of put a notch in our belt or make us feel good it's the work of god with eternal consequences and we are his servants who he enlists to do his bidding. But it's God's work, not ours. Which brings us to scene three, where Jesus talks to the crowds about divorce. But again, it's bigger than just divorce. I think Mark's put this teaching in here, in this spot, for a reason. Mark wants to show us a lesson about, again, our inability and God's power. Verse one. Then Jesus left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Divorce back then, it appears, was a hot topic 
much similar to today. And so the Pharisees have come up to Jesus, did you notice, not because they want an answer, but because, verse 2, they want to test Jesus. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I'm guessing it's a test because whatever answer Jesus gives, someone will be upset by it. And so Jesus answers their question not by talking about divorce, but by talking about marriage. So if you want to understand divorce, you need to look at marriage and God and sin and why God allowed divorce in the first place. So Jesus goes on to explain what was behind the command. And Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Look with me at Mark 10, verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they're in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. The point Jesus is making is this. Divorce is never a good thing. I'm not saying it's always, uh, it's never a wrong thing, but it's never a good thing. And if you go back and look at Genesis where two people are married, they become one flesh before God. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, Jesus is saying, how dare you separate what God has joined? The problem is, though, us, humans, we have hard hearts. And so in Old Testament times, under the law, God allowed divorce. Why? Because the law can't fix people's problems. We see here the powerlessness of two people even to sort out their own marriage. And so if two people with hard hearts can't live together, the law in the Old Testament provided a way for divorce because of hard hearts. What's this whole section about? With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that's why even though in the Old Testament uh, God allowed divorce, he was looking forward to a day when God would actually put his spirit inside people and change their hard hearts. And I take it that's why in the New Testament, for Christians, divorce is not an option. That's why Jesus says anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery and so on. Because for Christians, we don't have hard hearts anymore. We have the spirit giving us soft hearts. So no matter how bad someone's marriage gets, even if they have to live apart for a while and separate, no matter how much they hate each other, there's the possibility, if both people are Christians, if both people, there's the possibility of repentance. With God, all things are possible. 
But it's not do it yourself, is it? Only God can fix things up. And the only reason divorce is not an option when both people are Christians is because we don't have hard hearts anymore. Now I take it that's why Corinthians says a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. That is speaking to Christians. And for Christians, there's the possibility of repentance, of of soft hearts being changed. I take it that's why in that same passage we read, if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances God has called us to live in peace. See, the only place in the New Testament where a Christian is free is if their partner is an unbeliever. I take it that's because their heart is hard. They don't have the spirit of God. I think that's like God allowing divorce in the Old Testament. If God is not at work in them, let them go. Do you see the point there? It's the same big idea. Human beings who don't know Jesus, we're powerless. Do it yourself doesn't work even in marriage, but in God's strength, all things are possible. That brings us to Mark 10:17, where we're faced with the biggest issue of all. Not just evil spirits, not just divorce, but eternal life. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the big one. Eternal life. Because remember what we've just heard? It is better to enter eternal life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. How can we avoid that terrible, terrible place that Jesus was talking about in verse 44 where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched? Jesus replies in verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. That's exactly what this whole section has been about, isn't it? No one is good enough. Do it yourself won't work. I think Jesus wants to see if this man knows that. Jesus is almost leading him on here. Does this man know that no one is good enough? Why is this man asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. What's the right answer here? The right answer is something like, well, Jesus, I've failed. The man gives the wrong answer, verse 20. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. All these. Oh, dear, this is so sad. This man is blind, so blind to his own sin, he doesn't even realise that he needs Jesus' help. He's nowhere near it. He thinks he's good. He thinks it is possible to earn eternal life. Jesus is just about to burst that bubble. Verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go. Go. 
Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. See, this man hasn't kept the commandments from his youth at all. He's missed them because he's missed the most important one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. He doesn't love God with all his heart. No one does. We all have things that we love more than God. For this man, it's his money. And what follows, I think, is one of the saddest lines in the Bible. Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away very sad because he had great wealth. Here's a man who is very rich, but it can't make him happy. Worse than that, his riches is getting in the way of the only thing that can make him happy. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. See, we can't even pray properly. We can't even get our own marriages right. How can we stand a chance of eternal life? With man, this is impossible, but not with God. And thank God it doesn't rely on our ability to get to heaven. I mean, ever tried making a New Year's resolution? How long did it last, honestly? Ever tried stopping a bad habit? How long did it last? Got sins that you've been struggling with for years and years and they still bug you? Getting to heaven is not a do-it-yourself job. It's about asking God for his help. And in fact, Jesus has already shown us that. Look back at verse 13 with me. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. How do you get into the kingdom of heaven if it's not about doing things? You receive it like a little child. Little children are powerless. You have to do everything for them. You have to cook their food for them. You have to put a roof over their head. You tuck them into bed at night. You dress them. You look after them when they're sick. You tell them when to get up. You tell them when to go to bed. You change their nappies for them. And they don't have any worries in life because everything is done for them. That's the picture here. It's a great picture. The little children are in Jesus' arms. He's blessing them. And he says, that's what it's like to enter the kingdom of God. Everything has been done for you. Jesus, when he died on the cross, has done everything that needs to be done for you to be right with God. All you need to do is receive it 
like a little child. We're totally unable to save ourselves. It's not about our ability though. It's about God's. Have you realised that? Maybe you're here this morning and you think that you're the worst person that you know of. You might have a past full of secrets that no one else knows about. You might be ashamed of things that you've done in your life. The great news of this passage is it it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. You can be saved. You can have eternal life. You can be sure about it. Because it's not about what you've done or what you haven't done. It's about what God has done for you. It's about acknowledging your failure and asking God to forgive you. Or you might be here this morning and you might be a Christian. And isn't this passage a great reminder? You're not a Christian because of anything good you've done. You have contributed nothing to your salvation. It was and it still is impossible for you to save yourself. With man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the such a simple message that this passage has that we can't save ourselves and we need to rely on you, we pray that you would make that real to us. We pray that we would rely on Jesus and all the mess in our lives and the sin and the disappointments, we pray that you would use them to point us to Jesus. We pray that you'd use our failures to humble us. We pray that anything good in our life would not bring us pride, but we'd be thankful to you for it. And we pray that until Jesus returns, you'd keep us relying on him so that he might have all the glory. Pray these things in his name. Amen.